This is one of those surreal moments where I'm sitting in California and the sun is shining brightly and I'm at the Beverly Hills Hotel with Suze Green, who was the last ever Supreme. Diana Ross may have been the first, but you were the last. I would always listen to Motown, including to your music. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of those songs was, is it called Let My Heart Do The Walking? Let My Heart Do The Walking. But I never knew that that was you at the start, <laughs> wasn't it? And how does that Sherry. bit go again? Well, Sherry starts off with, do, 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 do. That's Sherry Payne. And then I do all those high notes, those soaring notes throughout. was by no means set off by the Supremes. Sure. You had been an integral part of Wonder Love, which is the creative hub around Stevie Wonder. Yes. In fact, you would go on to write many songs with him. Sure. You appeared on the Michael Jackson documentary mm -hmm. only recently That's after right. his death, and your song uh, was performed by Stevie Wonder at the Memorial yes. in Staples Center, not far from where we are right now. Sure. Is there a moment, is there a, a place marker in all that history mm. that you would extract or that you would detach from the rest and say, that was my moment? Well, when I was with Wonderlove, it was a very different situation. You know, we were 10 musicians and three ladies or four ladies, varying from time to time. And it was there I always said that Wonderlove was my band, and of course that would make Stevie mad at me, but, hmm. but he knew what I meant. They were tremendous musicians, and I felt for the first time right at home in a musical situation that I had control of. We had Greg Fillinganes, who went on to become Michael Jackson's band leader. We had Michael Cimbello as the lead guitarist who did uh, Flashdance, and she's a maniac. You know, that was his song, tremendous writer, guitarist, singer, all of that in his own right. Nate Watts, who's still with Stevie, who was his bass player and is one of the baddest bass players ever. There were so many. Hank Red was the band leader at that time. When Greg, Gregory Fillinganes came into the group, he was 18 years old. We called him Captain Quasar because Stevie could play something that Greg had never heard and he could repeat it immediately. The ladies, of course, Denise Williams, Shirley Brewer, and there were others who came and went, Mary Lee Whitney, but that was my band. Hank Red, who was a saxophone player, wrote along with Nate Watts and Denise and I, wrote Free, which was her first million seller. I wanted to ask you, I love this song, and I was mm -hmm. telling you at lunch just a, a, a short while ago that that part where it, I don't know how to describe it, the part that goes in the very slow vocal yes. introduction, and it goes... Da, 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 da. Sure, it's so recognisable, oh, isn't it? You know, and I mm -hmm. said to you, it's like butter on toast that melted <laughs> underneath the California sun.
It's just one of those moments to the ear.、Sure. That's one of the greatest moments I think in music.、Mm, thank you. Why didn't you sing it yourself at the time? Well, that's a good question. But when Nisi was in the group, we wrote many, many songs. Not just she and I, but that's what Wonder Love was, and that's why it's so satisfying in my heart. It was my favorite group to be in, even though I've been in the Supremes. And I've been one of the Raylettes, you know, with Ray Charles. But Wonderland. I didn't even know that. Really? Oh my、yeah. goodness! And I always—I must send you. Now that sends me off again. I must send you a copy or a link to my singing my funny Valentine at the Salle Pleyel in Paris with Ray Charles playing the piano. Goodness. And it's a real—I was maybe 19 years old. Funny Valentine, sweet, sweet comic Valentine. You make me smile with my. It's just a tremendous musical moment <sighs> that so many people have seen. Since then, and and remarked how extraordinary to get that opportunity to actually step forward from the group and have that solo. But that was my always my arrangement with whomever I.、Wanted. But in terms of a group, it was Wonder Love that was creatively the most fulfilling. That's right for you. Absolutely. Then you, your mother, who was had her own relationship. With the people at Motown, where you already were anyway,、sure. <laughs> heard about an opening in the Supremes,、yes. and so you gave up that community and stepped into what I believe is still historically、sure. the most successful girl group ever. Ever, you know, you can't fight that. I, even though I tried, <laughs> <laughs> I did. You know, after I left and and other things began to happen, you. I, I'm not a person who believes in standing still, but the Supremes is something that is undeniable. They made a place in history for all artists, particularly for Black artists who had never been exposed in, you know, the big showrooms across the world. And because they were presented in such a classy manner, there were only nine women in the world who ever were in that group. And to be the last, you can't beat that. You mentioned about being a, a black artist at that time, and it reminds me of that great interview that Oprah Winfrey did with Diana Ross.、Mm-hmm. I think it was around '93. Yes. And she said that one day she turned on the Ed Sullivan Show and she said, "I wanted to be like that." The story of the Supremes and the story of Motown, Stevie Wonder. And then so many other people: The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, Rick James, Tammy Terrell, Boys to Men. We could go、oh, on and on. Oh gosh, Michael Jackson, <laughs> the Jacksons.、Right. That's right.、Oh, you know, people forget. I think that、um, it was the ram that broke down、mm-hmm. so many gates, let alone doors. And at that time in America. It was what you just indicated just there—a time when black artists weren't welcome、yes. to perform everywhere, or if they were invited to the top supper clubs at that、mm-hmm. time, they ironically could sing for the patrons but、sure. couldn't sit with them.、Right. By the time you had got to the Supremes, 
which was probably in the early 70s, if Mm -hmm. I'm right. Had that all stopped? I don't know if it ever stops on a certain level, you know? I mean, I grew up in New York City, and you see a lot, you know? You, You are... It's where I was first exposed to Motown. So the irony of growing up as a kid and seeing the Supremes, the Supremes, I believe, became so famous because not just the the elegance and the classy clothing and the classy presentation, it was the fact that you had three individual women who were forward-thinking in their attitudes. They were young. It was the voice of young America. And they were able to transcend because each one of them represents something different. I stood in front of that mirror and I was Diana unless I was being Florence or unless I was being Mary, you see. For a girl, and and I know for so many guys, and the Supremes have been a tremendous influence, not just on music, on clothing, on the fact that they made it into this transcended world, but as women, as political statements, you know, they stepped out into places that had never been acceptable. When you were in the Supremes, along came five boys from Gary, Indiana. Yes. And <laughs> oh, yes. they changed the world all the over world. again. And after they changed the world, Michael changed it again on his own. You know, it's, it's the magic that is it's almost imperceptible, the finding that. You know, you can't teach someone to have star quality. You, can, you can't give them talent, but you can develop it. What was he like? Michael. Michael was the shyest boy. Shyest boy you ever saw. I remember it because my mom, Vivian Green, was coaching. She got Janet ready to record her first album. That was the one with... Well, she did some duets with Cliff Richard, I think, yes, didn't she? exactly. And she coached her, and we went to her. She took me with her sometimes to their house, which is in Encino. We lived right down the street, up the street, right? She also coached Cheryl Lynn. Remember, got to be real. And a huge worldwide hit. She got her ready to record for CBS. You know, she would always include me when she could, of course. But when she took me to the Jacksons' house, Michael was always, you'd see him, you know, you'd see him fleeting (laughs) because he was so painfully shy. But my real Michael story, I have two actually. The first one happened when I went to the house and, and Michael was hiding behind the door and all of that, you know, but you'd see him hiding. They all wore robes. He was a little boy, of course. No, grown man. (laughs) Grown man by this time again. Yes. And um, it's just, you know, he... He didn't really have a childhood. And because of that, I think his, his shyness is what helped him learn to create. You know, Michael would stand and watch everyone, and he'd pick stuff up and soak it up, you know? But the funny thing, we sat during Songs in the Key of Life. Stevie had recorded most of it. He was still in the mixing and mastering stage. And he had a, uh, a big outside studio, outside of his studio, that was a mobile studio. And he was just playing the songs. It was so loud, you couldn't really talk. I'm sitting in there listening to songs, and Michael came in. Well, you know, you know how you would feel if Michael Jackson walked in the room and sat down. There's no one else there. And we listened to songs. We must have stayed there three hours. 
listening and swaying. We couldn't believe it. We'd smile. He said one thing to me. He said, are you Miss Green's daughter? It's <laughs> <That's> my mom. <laughs> and I said, yes. And then the music came back on and it was so loud. You couldn't really talk. So he really was that shy. Yes, he was. That was the only thing he said to you in three hours and you were sitting next to yeah. each yeah. other. And I'd be shying each other out. And he, he associated you as being your mother's daughter exactly. rather than you being in... In Wonderlove. You know? All the Supremes. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. It is. It's funny. You know, and I look back... I think of all the things I could have said. What was the second Michael Jackson story? The second story was, we were, before I say, I Can't Help It had been written by that time, and Stevie was presenting it to him that day. That very day. That that became one of the huge moments on Off the Wall. That was the moment where, as you described earlier, he really did change and did it all over again. That's right. This is the song that was performed by Stevie Wonder in Staples Center at his memorial. Were you at the memorial? No, I couldn't go. I couldn't go. I, I, like everyone else, was, you know, I knew his family, but it was just heartbreaking. It was a time that I think people couldn't believe that this had happened. It was so sudden. You knew when you saw Michael there was something wrong at that stage. He was so gaunt small a frame he had very low energy he would get it together if anyone has seen the video of the the rehearsals that they put out because he was going on tour you know was heartbroken it's not the same no no you were in the documentary yes. with stevie wonder yes. uh, talking back about mm. i can't help it yes what did you learn from that from I Can't Help It or from the documentary? From the documentary, because I think he said something to you. Mm. He said that song, if I'm right, was originally intended for songs, for in, the songs in the key of and life. And I didn't realize Because I think you turned around and you said, really? I didn't know that. I didn't. I, I'd never heard that before. Sure. Well, his sister, as he explained, his sister had, his sister was very close to Michael. And she is the one who went to him and said, Steve's got a song for, for you. She, when she heard it, she said, this is perfect for Michael. She's very insightful, you know. But I think I learned so many things. It was like a reunion, you know, the actual recording or filming, to be with Spike Lee and see the way that he works, his process. When I was there, Barry Gordy was there. Um, Greg Fillingaines was there. But we actually performed, Stevie and I performed I Can't Help It Together for Spike because he was digging, trying to find out, you know, how did you two meet and what was going on and all that stuff, you know, as people will do. But Steve and I were friends, you know. Do you still see him? Yes, of course. How's he doing? He's fine. He's getting married. I called him in the middle of the night. (laughs) This is really funny. I was in New York visiting my dad, who's 96, by the way. And I dialed, because his name is Steve, and my husband's name is Steve. So I'm kind of not looking. And I called, and I just start talking. And he said, what's to say? 
are you doing? And I know you'll never let me forget it. He's already called me and laughed at me about actually calling him in the middle of the night. I mean, it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. There are lots of stories yes. around police brutality. Of course. There's a movement that's self-organized called Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. and there are many other mm -hmm. chapters and community groups beyond that. Sure. Do you think that the artists today and the people who buy music today are as conscious about leveraging the unity and the language that comes through notes, through melodies, through soundtracks, and attaching that to the importance of the times in which we live? I think it's all about the times. You know, the, the cultural difference is that young people are not as interested in the language as in perpetuating their language. You know, they might, they speak in different terms, in different ways than when I was growing up or when I was a teenager. But I've always had a staunch, staunch respect for the language, for the English language. To me, it is the opportunity to express yourself in the most elegant, most insightful way. And I think young people miss that by not embracing the language. And it, it has a lot to do with, even though they are very astute politically and as far as their culture goes, everyone around the world has embraced hip hop. They have, haven't they? Sure. There are tremendous Japanese artists that are hip hop artists, Korean artists, all kinds of everywhere. France, Australia, everybody's got their thing. Does that bother you? So some people, they say that co-opting the culture, the African-American no. experience? No, not at all. Music is not sacred in that way. If it weren't for people embracing music, take Ray Charles. You know, Ray was a person who could go anywhere in the world and people knew him because of the music and they might not speak the same language, but they feel the feeling. We are, and by we I mean human beings, are all one feeling entity. We all have the same emotions, regardless of culture. We all have the same laughter and sorrows and experiences. And I don't think anyone can deny that. You go, I have stood in front of an audience somewhere where people in France, for instance, and they could feel it, you know. That's the connection that we have. That's soul mm, music, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. And it's what makes it's what makes music worthwhile, that connection. It doesn't matter where you're from. You've been through the same things on some level that I've been through. And if I can relay that through song, through music, which, by the way, lives forever. A song is a song. A great song Oh, gosh, lives I think I'm going to get back ever. into the car and listen to Free again. <laughs> And also to Partners, which oh, was the it. groundbreaking album that you, you created. You should download the Partners album, Suze Green with Cherie Payne, because it really is electric. And yeah. the Thank quality so 
the quality of the recording, the quality of the yes. instruments, the quality of the singing, the quality yeah. of the songwriting, all align like mm. stars on a stave. What a lovely thing to say. a blessing to make. We had been through a very tumultuous time at Motown with the Supremes. Mary had gone from the group under the advice of her husband to go solo. And Mary and Diane decided that they would speak to Barry Gordy and ask that the Supremes not continue without an original member, which was ironic because we had wanted Mary to stay. When you say Diane, of course you mean Diana Ross. Yes. Uh, and uh, she was the first, as I said at the beginning, and mm -hmm. you happened to be the last. Mm -hmm. That's a very special history yes. to share with each other. Sure. Do the eight surviving members, because of course Florence, Florence Ballard yes. passed away yes. very early, in fact a few days after you sure. joined, mm -hmm. and there was a whole thing, of course, that's her story in Dreamgirls. We don't even forget that Dreamgirls mm -hmm. is in a way, a Not telling. In a way. <laughs> it is. I was being polite. I know. I was being polite. They really should pay them. <laughs> they really should, right? Really this should. is the story of the Supremes yeah. and how one member mm -hmm. fell away yeah. through a variety of <laughs> reasons. reasons. Sure. But it's it's what happens. Things bad things happen to good people. That's right. That's your ringtone. <laughs> Yes. Now we know what your ringtone's like. Isn't it right? You know, I was going to ask you what your ringtone was, you know, when I said I wanted to use your laughter as mine, but now we have a live recording of it. That's so great. It could be Stevie Wonder, by the way, if it's not the other Stevie. <laughs> we'll find out. Right. Suze Green is such a joy. And we'll see you again in Los Angeles or yes. somewhere in between. Yes, indeed.